A desperate search. No sign of the four-year-old. In this We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. As the sun rises at a popular campsite in a rugged part of Western Australia, a family wake to discover their little girl is missing from their tent. Panic begins to spread as the alarm is raised. A major search is underway for a four-year-old girl who is missing just north of Carnarvon. Little Cleo was last seen near the Cobber blowholes around 1.30 this morning and police aren't ruling anything out. The date is Saturday, 16th of October, 2021. Day one of what would become a desperate 18-day search. The title of this podcast, My Name is Cleo, are the words spoken by Cleo Smith just moments after she was rescued by police, described by some as the greatest moment in WA policing. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, and we're going to step through the investigation, starting with those first few frantic hours and days when Cleo vanished. Also joining me is the West Australian's Kristen Shorten, Phoebe Pinn from the Geraldton Guardian, editor of the West Australian, Anthony DeSegli, and pilot from Coral Coast Helicopter Services, Dave Aman. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. G'day. Thanks, Nat. Dave, the blowholes are an extraordinary place. You operate helicopter tours out there. Can you describe that area for us and what it's like? Yeah, no worries. So um, the blowholes are about a 75-kilometre drive from Carnarvon and maybe about 20 minutes flying from Carnarvon itself. But it's pretty rugged landscape with cliffs. The underwater area is pretty crazy. You've got a lot of barnacles and the blowholes work by having um, these little channels underwater where swell pushes up into them and pushes it up through a really tight cavern. And then you've got big water spouts shooting up into the air. And the actual campsite itself, uh, where the family are camping, uh, is that right at the blowholes? Yeah, that's right. So that's about maybe a kilometre away from the actual blowholes itself. And it's just a bunch of shacks on a little lagoon area, which is a beautiful snorkel with crystal clear blue water and little sharks everywhere and beautiful like fish and yeah it's it's a lovely spot and in terms of the campsite itself it's not like the big four is it it's quite remote and rustic as a campground that's correct yeah it's very rustic and remote and lots of tin sheds which are rusting out of course because of the salty air and I guess for those of you who aren't familiar with WA's Northwest, Dave just mentioned that the closest town is a place called Carnarvon, which is about 70 k's away. But just to give you some perspective, the campground's actually around 1,000 kilometres away from Perth, which is the capital city. So it is super remote. Kristen, Cleo's family live in Carnarvon. Do we know how long they've lived there? Yeah, Nat. So Cleo's mum, Ellie, seemed to have very deep, long-standing ties to the Carnarvon community. She is actually from Carnarvon, but had been living in Perth when she had Cleo. In January 2019, she did return to Carnarvon. She had separated from Cleo's dad, Daniel Staines, who is from and remains in Perth. She'd returned to Carnarvon, I assume to be close to her family again and that's where she met or got together with her current partner Jake Glidden and the father of her second child Isla. So in Carnarvon Ellie is a local eyelash and eyebrow technician. She also has a soap and candle making side hustle and Jake works for Rio Tinto up there and in just April this year Ellie and Jake had bought a house for their growing family. Like I said they also have a baby together Isla who is about seven months old 
And when they moved up there, Cleo started full-time childcare, but she now attends St. Mary's Star at the Sea and in July celebrated her fourth birthday. And do you know if they'd been camping at the blowholes prior to this particular trip? Yeah, I do. In their first televised interview, Ellie did say that her family had been visiting the blowholes, certainly Cleo's whole life, but also Ellie's whole life. Ellie and Jake had both visited the blowholes their whole life because Jake is also from that Carnarvon area and they knew it extremely well, like the back of their hand. And Cleo had been going there since she was a baby, not only with her mum, Ellie, but also with other relatives. There were photos on social media of her uh, visiting the blowholes recently with aunties and cousins. And this particular camping trip was to be Cleo's first camping trip with her baby sister, Isla. They hadn't been for a little while, obviously, having a new baby. And Cleo was super excited about this first trip with her new baby sister. Wow. So this is a really special um, camping trip for them. And they got to the blowholes on the Friday night. Can you just talk us through that timeline from the Friday night when they arrived? So over the first few days after Cleo's disappearance, the media were trying to piece together the timeline. There were a lot of gaps and a lot uh, of the detail was unknown. But what we discovered in the first few days was that Ellie, Jake and their two daughters had arrived at the Blowholes campsite on the Friday evening, just as it was coming on dark around 6.30. They had, you know, set up the tent, made dinner for the girls, got the girls settled into bed. They, Cleo had actually gone to bed first in the family tent at about 8pm. Now they had a brand new family tent that they just bought specifically for this trip. It was a large tent with sort of two separate rooms inside and a divider in between. The whole family was sleeping in the same tent. So Cleo had gone to bed at about 8pm and they'd put Isla to bed shortly after. So in one room of the tent, Cleo was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and baby Isla was in a travel cot. And so after tucking the girls into bed, Ellie and Jake had gone to bed shortly after. And Ellie has described it as being quite a windy night. It was quite overcast and very noisy. The weather was very noisy. And of course, there was also, you know, the sound of the ocean and the blowholes nearby. So they put the girls to bed and gone to bed themselves. And that was it for Friday, October 15. But at about 1.30am on the Saturday, Ellie was woken by Cleo who wanted a drink of water. So Ellie got up, gave Cleo a sip of water and put Cleo back to bed. And the last thing Ellie remembered saying to her was to go back to bed, go back to sleep. And then the next morning at around 6am, Ellie was woken by Isla who was stirring wanting her morning bottle. And it was at that point that Ellie got up and went into the other room of the tent. She went past the divider and discovered, you know, in absolute horror that Cleo wasn't there, turned around and saw that the tent was unzipped. What we now know is that there are a couple of other little incidents that had occurred around 3am, which you know, obviously sort of emerged in the days following. And that they are that at around 3am, so after Ellie had put uh, Cleo back to bed and given her a drink of water, campers heard the sound of a car skidding as it took off from the area. And then more recently, towards the end of the investigation, uh, police informed us that there had been a report of a car turning off Blowholes Road, turning right or south towards Carnarvon at around 3am as well. So those are two crucial pieces of information and evidence in the police investigation that 
emerged afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting because at the time there were these little missing moments that we didn't really understand. So, for instance, when the police first talked about the fact that the parents had noticed she was missing and they talked about this interaction at 1.30 in the morning, but for the first 24 hours nobody knew what that interaction was and that only unfolded later that it was revealed that, yes, Cleo had wanted a glass of water or a drink of water. So it was really interesting in the vacuum of information, people speculating, well, what was that interaction? What was happening? What did that mean? Dave, that morning, when did you first hear that a child was missing at the blowholes? Um, so we pretty much got a call at around about oh, maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning from family, friends or family. And that call went to my boss, Justin. And then he called us because he was out bush mustering, doing other flying to let us know that we should pack up the helicopter and head up to the blowholes as soon as we could. So that's really almost just minutes within the family waking and realising that Cleo has vanished. You've pretty much got that call immediately. How, how fast were you able to get up in the air? Pretty quickly. We had all fueled up and ready to go. And I think we were up there by about 7.30 because there's a little bit of a flight time as well. And then we got straight into it. So you ordinarily take people on tours. When you're up there looking for a missing child, what are you looking for? So first of all, when we flew up there, we we landed to just get some more details of what we're actually looking for because we didn't want to fly around, you know, like headless chickens, I guess. Yeah. And what were you told um, at that point when you did land? Um, Just that there was a four-year-old girl missing and they sent us a photo of her with her pink onesie and that. So we just knew the colours that we were looking for and, of course, a young child. So we set up sort of a a perimeter around the area, what we thought was pretty possible for her to walk in that amount of time, and then we started gridding that slowly. In terms of how far you thought she may have been able to walk, how many kilometres were you sort of searching in that grid area? So probably to the north was maybe three to four kilometres and then to the east maybe two and then another three to four south but the actual area that we were searching is pretty rugged so there's sand dunes and then lots of thorny bushes and then there's a fence line that runs from north to south and there's a road that runs out um, at the north as well so it's a really good boundary that Mm. we set up because if she got to the fence line she probably wouldn't have passed through is what we what we thought in our heads yeah right and looking back towards the ocean there was a powerful swell that day Uh, did you think yourself that she could have gone into the water and part of that grid of course was that the water area yeah so later once we finished doing the land search we um we teamed up with sea rescue canavan sea rescue and we got given a drift line which is just a a current which was flowing that day which would be the plausible area and then we um, searched that as well in the lagoon and also of course just the cliff areas but find anything of course. Yeah so while you were up there there was nothing at the time that caught your eye at all? No that's right yeah we were stuck so we ended up flying north actually all the way up to Nalu Bay Mm. which is a good other maybe a good another 100 150 kilometers north of the actual blowholes we just let the people know about what's happening. And had you ever been involved in a search like this? Um, Not at this scale no we um, we've done small searches where if someone's thought they've seen a flare pop off or something and then we do some circles but not where we go and do grids and really thorough searching under each bush and so many people around the place as well. Well it did become an absolutely massive search on the ground below. This is a little snippet from our colleagues at Seven News. By midday authorities had mobilised with a full-scale rescue operation in full swing. 
Police and SES on the ground and in the air. Marine rescue on the water, searching for a girl in a pink jumpsuit, lost in red dirt country, or maybe somewhere off the coast. Phoebe, you were the first journalist on the scene. What time did you get a call and and what did you find out at that point? Yeah, so um, I was the the Saturday journalist for the Geraldton Guardian and it's usually a pretty quiet gig, um, but I caught a call from my editor, Kate Campbell, probably just after 10.30 saying you need to get in the car and go up to Carnarvon because there's been a, a little girl who's gone missing. So at that point, I didn't know Cleo's name. I didn't know exactly where they'd been camping. I didn't know the circumstances of surrounding her disappearance. I just basically chucked a bunch of clothes in a bag, got some petrol and, and hit the road. And it's a quite a drive, right? It's about five hours? Yeah, it's about five hours from Geraldton. And um, along the way, uh, I stopped to fuel up again at Overlander Roadhouse. And that's when I saw posters start to be put up with Cleo's face and some information about what had happened. So that's when I started to get a a bit of a clearer picture of who Cleo was and and what was going on. Yeah, it's incredible because we're talking a matter of, you know, six hours and there's already posters up at the roadhouses. So you uh, arrived there around, what, five o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, so I probably got into Carnarvon Town around five o'clock. And the town itself was very quiet. It's a small town, about 5,100 people. But, you you know, Saturday afternoon you'd expect people to be mingling around, but I assumed that they were all helping with the search. There was was posters on every every business shop front with with Cleo's face. So I I headed to the blowholes, which is about a 30-40 minute drive from the Carnarvon town itself. And, yeah, I, I didn't really know what to expect. At that point, there was no roadblocks in place, so I could drive straight into the campsite. And to my left, I saw the campers, the caravans, and later on, the tent. And to my right, I saw the command post being set up with police and SES and and St John's and all that as well. And who did you first speak to when you walked into the campsite? So I tried to speak to some campers. Um, There weren't many around. There was maybe a dozen caravans that I could see, a couple people, you know, sitting on deck chairs, a couple people fishing or walking on the beach. Everyone was very tight-lipped because, you know, I identified myself as media and um, everyone knew, knew the family. So they were naturally very protective of them and no one really wanted to give too much away. So it wasn't until probably the next day that I really started to get an idea of what was going on. And how far was the tent from the water? So um, the tent, you couldn't really see the water from the tent. Uh, It was maybe 100 metres from the beach, but that was the actual beach at the campsite, not the blowholes itself. So it was still quite choppy, um, you know, around 5.30 in the evening at the beach. And then the blowholes, like as Dave mentioned, is about a kilometre from the actual campground, which was obviously, you know, blowing a gale. And yeah, that's when I started to get a picture of how rough the terrain was and, and how horrible it would have been if this little girl had been lost or accidentally fell off a cliff. And the command post itself, uh, how many people were there and were in that area? Yeah, so um, there was police. Uh, later we found out that, you know, detectives from Perth had already made their way 
to Carnarvon uh, for the search. There was uh, SES Post, St John's, so I could see maybe a dozen people at any one time, but there was people coming and going uh, while I was there until dark. Um, and that's when I understand they scaled back the land search a little bit because the conditions were so rough. Yeah. It would have been dangerous to keep searching. I did see uh, a blue Coral Coast helicopter launching probably for another circle while I was there. And um, I knew they were a local company. So um, it was clear that everyone, every resource was getting put into this already. So, Dave, that was obviously you heading back up to have another look. Uh, how treacherous was it by this point and were you worried about the conditions? Yeah, look, it was pretty windy for sure and a bit of swell, but, yeah, it wasn't the best conditions, but we managed to still do our best, I guess. And I think, you know, at this point it's fair to say that people are fearing she's gone into the water or she's wandered off into the rugged terrain. But at one point in the day, Cleo's mum posted to social media and I think this was really the first time when that theory was maybe being questioned. The four-year-old's mother raised the alarm, making this desperate plea for help on social media. Very, very unusual for Cleo. Please, if you see anything unusual or suspicious, call the police. So I think it became clear at that point that police were really listening to Ellie, who was saying it's not like her daughter to wander off. And I think, Kristen, later, we even heard Ellie go on to say that Cleo actually didn't enjoy walking that much. I think the word she might have used was that she was a bit lazy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that social media post by Ellie, that was at 1.30am on the Sunday morning. So when little Cleo had just been missing for about 24 hours, so I mean, obviously, Ellie wasn't going to get any sleep that night. It was her first night without her daughter. And she made that desperate Facebook plea at 1.30am. Uh, and in the following days, when I did speak to friends of the family, they all said the same thing, that Cleo would not have wandered off. She was a super smart little girl. One of them used the words intellectually advanced. Mm. And Ellie even had said that Cleo was actually, she loved going to the beach and playing on the sand, but she was actually scared of the ocean. Uh, so, you know, she wouldn't have gone anywhere near the water. And police and everyone had said that between the tent and the water, there were sand dunes, No, you know, with or without a sleeping bag at that point. We didn't know that the sleeping bag was missing, but yeah. even without a sleeping bag, that little girl would not have climbed over sand dunes in pitch black and headed towards, you know, a noisy kind of ocean. Yeah, and it was really clear at this point that nothing was being ruled out by police. Police are taking this extremely seriously to the extent they requested every newsroom in the state urgently broadcast details of the search. At this stage... They aren't ruling anything out, including the terrifying possibility Cleo was taken. Kristen, I, I remember when I heard that, it was a shocking thing to hear that that was a possibility. You've investigated cases where children have gone missing. Did that take you by surprise? No, it didn't. And I'm no detective, but from having reported on a number of child abductions in depth, and simply just having young daughters of my own that are a very similar age to Ellie and Jake's kids, I'd immediately suspected that Cleo had been abducted because it just seemed so unlikely mm. to me that a little girl would wander out of a tent on her own in the middle of the night. So my initial thoughts were that this ultimately was going to be a story about an abduction and probably a murder because, you know, sadly that's often the outcome. Phoebe, um, what was happening at the campground when you left that night? What time did you leave? 
So I left uh, about 7 o'clock when it was getting dark. I could still see no roadblock and uh, I couldn't see police, you know, walking around questioning campers or anything yet. So it really looked to me like it was winding down for the day. We later learned that they were still searching using heat mapping technology during the night, but it looked like they were getting ready for launching the search at first light the next day. So at this point, people are still able to get in and out of the campgrounds uh, because it hasn't been blocked off as a crime scene, I guess. Correct, yeah. At that time, Anthony, you were at the Telethon Ball back in Perth, along with the state's top cop. Was there a massive amount of talk about this big search that was underway? Uh, Look, it was an eerie sort of um, mood, I guess would be the best way to describe it. So the Telethon Ball was, you know, in many ways the biggest event of the year for most people um, in Perth. So, you know, this amazing event for sick kids across Mm. Perth and, and WA and at the same time, obviously, this, this news was starting to come out about Cleo and there was definitely an eerie feeling about maybe it was going to um, not go the way that people thought it would normally with these sort of missing kids cases. They're wrapped up and the kids found pretty quickly. By that time of the night, there was this, like I said, sort of eerie feeling about here we are celebrating a charity for children and, and raising an enormous amount of money, which was fantastic, but sort of with this understanding that there was this little kid missing and it, and it could be quite a, a harrowing story to come. And really, I mean, anyone who's anyone in Perth would have been there at the ball with you. The Premier was there, the ministers are there. Yeah, it's hard to overstate the importance of the people in that room. Premier, the Deputy Premier, most of the CEOs of the biggest businesses in town, the Police Commissioner, the Police Minister. I mean, you really have the top echelon of Perth in one room for one night of the year. And there was no doubt that amongst some of them, you know, particularly the police commissioner, the police minister, there was talk about this story um, might not go away, this might be a bad one. Um, And I remember at that time, you know, already there were concerns about was the zipper on the tent too high for a little kid to open herself and what could that possibly mean? That sort of really came out a few days later sort of publicly, and I think that was maybe when the police had crossed that bridge of something suspicious has happened here. So at that stage, it was still just a missing girl, you know, hopefully had wandered off on her own and would be found. But there was talk about that and and there was, you know, talk about the actual blowhole site itself. Yeah, it was pretty ironic. We were celebrating children in Western Australia and celebrating this amazing charity where we raise so much money for sick kids all over the world. And at that same time, while this story was happening up in the northwest, it just had a really unsettling feeling for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And even as the editor of the the newspaper, we had the Sunday Times the next day and I had James Schwier, um, one of my assistant editors, doing the front page back in the office. And, you know, we were talking about how do we get the mix right between Mm. the story of Cleo missing and the story of, you know, a record telephone raising money for sick children and, you know, what would the front page look like and were we giving Cleo enough prominence um, in those very, very, very early hours considering that eerie premonition that, Jesus, this could be worse than what we think. It's now been more than 24 hours since I last saw the sparkle in my little girl's eyes. Please help me find her. If you hear or see anything at all, please call the police. Kristen, we know now that Ellie's connection to the public and these posts would be really quite pivotal because it just mobilised an entire state. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it was so unusual in that everyone could access Ellie's social media accounts and see just this back catalogue of stunning pictures of this gorgeous four-year-old girl who could have been any of our daughters. And, you know, there were so many photos that really spoke volumes about Cleo, what she was like as a little girl and their family, you know, her love of dressing up as a princess and just her pride of her baby sister, Isla, and, you know, how protective she was as a big sister. There were so many just gorgeous professional photos and just happy snaps taken by Ellie and so many gushing posts about the girls that, you know, it really gave you an insight into their family dynamic and what Cleo was like as a daughter and a big sister. Phoebe, what time did you get back to the campground the next morning and what was happening when you got there? Yeah, so probably like the rest of WA and like Cleo's family, I didn't get much sleep myself. So um, I, I left as early as I could and got back to the campground probably just after 6am. By that time, there was still no police roadblocks. I could still drive straight through the campground. I noticed there were probably a few less caravans than the night before, and it was very quiet. I was expecting SES everywhere, frantic searching, but um, there was hardly anything happening. I saw a couple of police officers. The command post was very quiet. It was hard to know what was going on, and we knew that the police were still didn't really have any idea what had happened to Cleo. They were still very much looking into the possibility that she had wandered off, but there was also the the separate part of the investigation into the possibility that she had been abducted. I was still able to walk up to the tent. Um, It was pretty distinctive. It was the only tent at the campground. It was taped off. And then that's when I, I got the message to move out by police. Uh, and so it probably would have been about 7 o'clock that I saw the roadblock being set up. So no one could enter the campground, but campers could still come out. And um, as they were coming out, caravans and, and every nook and cranny of their vehicles were being searched by police just in case there was a trace of Cleo. You obviously got right up close to the tent. How big is the tent? Can you describe it to us? Yeah, so it definitely looks like a family tent, quite spacious. A lot of tents are, you know, you don't want to spend too much time in them. Um, But it was a large tent. Yes, it looked like it does in the pictures, a normal family tent. Um, There was a few things, you know, bikes and little camping chairs around. I had a lot of space around them. The next caravan was maybe 50 metres down from them, but they were surrounded by quite a few little uh, beach shacks as well. Kristen, given there was the possibility of an abduction, were you surprised that, for instance, Phoebe could access the campground the next morning at 7am? Yeah, that is interesting, especially given that police have since released, you know, quite a detailed timeline of what had happened on the morning. And it has become abundantly clear that they were treating Cleo's disappearance as a potential abduction from the get-go. I mean... There were two, I guess, arms of this investigation from the moment Cleo vanished and Ellie called triple zero reporting her daughter missing. 
there was the search for Cleo in the hope that there was an innocent explanation for her disappearance and she had simply wandered off and would be found nearby. But there was also the investigation into a potential homicide or um, that there was a more sinister element to what had happened. So police extraordinarily actually released this detailed timeline of what they did after that triple zero call was made. And we now know that at 6.30am on the morning, Cleo vanished. Ellie had called triple zero at 10 past seven, two police vehicles arrived at the blowholes from Carnarvon. So they were dispatched immediately. At 7.30am, the family's campsite was cordoned off. Obviously, they can't cordon off the whole blowholes camp area, but the campsite where the tent was, was cordoned off. And then at 8am, Carnarvon detectives searched the family house in Carnarvon for Cleo in case she was there before they head out to the blowholes. And they were stopping vehicles leaving the blowholes on their way in. And 10 past 8, the local helicopter arrived and began searching. And 20 past 8, a third police vehicle arrived. 8.30, police set up this roadblock at the entrance to the blowholes. And by 9.30, nine SES personnel had arrived and begun searching the area. Meanwhile, the shack owners who helped police in their search for Cleo that morning have described, you know, the hysteria and distress and panic as something like out of a Mad Max film. So, you know, there were obviously lots of Carnarvon residents flocking to the blowholes to jump on quad bikes and joining the search, obviously flanked by those helicopters overhead. And it just sounds like it was a scene of absolute, you know, frantic chaos, which sounds like, yeah, in very stark contrast to what you saw when you arrived there that afternoon, Phoebe. Definitely. And I was a little bit surprised when I first saw that timeline come out because it was so different to what the picture that I was met with. And um, I had to go back and think, was there a roadblock? Did I drive past it? But I went the direct route when the police officer stopped me that Sunday morning. He said, you didn't go, you know, around the sand dunes or come some sneaky way. And I said, no, I literally just drove in, walked straight up and no one stopped me. So I didn't stop. So, yeah, it, it was interesting. Maybe they'd, they'd removed the roadblock by the time I got there. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and police also revealed that homicide detectives had landed in Carnarvon at 3pm that day. So they were on the ground from day one. And Dave, you were there in those um, frantic hours that Kristen's describing when you landed the chopper. What did it feel like? Was it absolute panic and mayhem? Probably not panic and mayhem, but there was a fair bit going on, of course, and everyone trying to figure out what's going on. Once we came back from going up the coast to um, tell more people what's going on, when we did get back, then a lot of the locals came in, as um, as you guys said before. So everyone from town was there, and as you said, quad bikes, and there was another helicopter as well. It was, yeah, pretty awesome to see how many people joined to help search for a little clear. How many people would you estimate were there? Oh, that's hard to say. There's probably good hundred maybe wow. I don't know it's hard to say there's lots of cars and yeah everyone getting together and it's a pretty tight-knit community isn't it you know most of the people there would all know the family directly or indirectly so there would have been this real sense of camaraderie and just this desperateness to all chip in yeah that's correct yeah that's right well, heading up the investigation at that stage was WA Police Inspector John Monday and this is what he was telling the public by day two it's needless to say, we, we just hold grave concerns for Cleo's safety. We're just trying to paint a picture of who was around here 
during the window off opportunity. We are fairly confident that if um, Cleo was around here, we will find her. We are throwing everything at it at the moment. Phoebe, John Monday is a senior officer based in Geraldton. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, great guy. Um, actually, all the police in Carnarvon were, were really great to work with. You know, the media can be a bit annoying and, and uh, can be seen as interfering with the police work, but I think they really knew the importance of working with the media in a case like this, and they were, you know, feeding us updates basically as, as they got them. So it, it really became apparent that John Monday especially had a heart for this case and um, he was going to do whatever he could, get as many resources as he could and as fast as he could to try and find Cleo. Can I also add there that John Monday is a very experienced detective as well with a background in homicide. He's from Perth and I mean just five years ago he was involved in the reinvestigation of Jared Ross's murder. So he's the assistant district officer now of that Midwest Gascoigne district but he does have a very strong homicide background and has investigated other child abductions in the past. So he would have been taking this very seriously from day one and treating this like he would any other homicide investigation in the Perth metro area. So it's almost fortuitous that he was the senior copper in that area that day. Absolutely. I think, you know, it was very fortunate that he was there because he he just has the experience and the perspective to treat this with the gravity that it needed. And it was very interesting because he was saying um, at the time that we won't have tunnel vision with this. And that was an interesting thing for him to say because we have seen examples in Western Australia police cases where there has been tunnel vision. And so for him to come out so early and say nothing is off the table was really interesting. Definitely. And just what he was saying about identifying people who were there during that window of opportunity. I mean, that's homicide speak. Like, you know, they, he wasn't talking about a little girl who had wandered off. He was talking about an abduction. That's right. Dave, did you take the chopper back up in day two? Yeah, so pretty much I was speaking to my boss, Justin, um, later that evening on day one. And then um, he was just saying that we should have a, a more thorough search through the water. So day two, we got up really nice and early and we were up there probably about 6.30 in the morning and started a search from south. And our um, southern boundary was um, Fitzroy Reef, which goes to about five kilometres offshore. And then we just gridded all that up until to the tip where there's Point Quabba, which is the blowholes, so that whole water area. And how difficult is it to actually see something that might be in the water? So normally when we do water searches, you're looking for a boat that might have sunk and you can see eskies floating and that sort of stuff but because we were just looking for just a little clue it was um of course a lot more difficult and also with the water being a little bit churned up and murky it wasn't the easiest but normally you do get a very good visibility or good good look and it sounds like on the ground you know the people who were there that day there's just this sense of almost this sense of disbelief and and shock and the tv journalists uh spoke to some of the people who were at the campground Look, we, yeah, they came in, um, people were walking down the road and said there's a little girl missing. Well, we just thought she'd wandered from the campsite. Horrible. A little girl. Well, She's a bit four, sick, for goodness sake. We've got a granddaughter who's nearly the same age and, yeah, just terrible. At this point, posters are up and there's signage all over the place and Inspector John Monday says there's literally information coming from roadhouses and towns um, that are within a thousand kilometre radius. Phoebe, what kind of information was he gathering? So literally everything. I called a few things in myself just while I was driving around. I saw a teddy bear and, and at that point we didn't know 
what else, if anything else, had been taken from the tent except for that uh, the sleeping bag. And everyone was doing the same. Uh, we, we heard of campers who spotted some people camping just outside the blowholes area itself and thought it looked a little bit suspicious. So they called that in. They were really calling for anything, uh, leaving no stone unturned. So much information coming through. I think for many people that sleeping bag does really become a focal point, doesn't it, Kristen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, once we learned that Cleo's sleeping bag was missing, it became even more abundantly apparent that she hadn't just got up and walked out of the tent. She had been scooped up in her sleeping bag. And, you know, at that point we didn't know about the zip or any other evidence. Um, I think the reports about the skidding tyres at 3am had come to light on day two, but... Yeah, that sleeping bag really was that crucial piece of evidence which swayed public opinion about what had happened to Cleo. Everything was starting to point to the fact that this child had been taken. By the end of day two, I mean, the the search was exhaustive, but they hadn't really produced any concrete leads. They still were no wiser as to what could have happened. And police were saying literally everything is on the table. It's been 40 hours and as each hour passes, the search for missing four-year-old Cleo is growing more desperate. They're understandably devastated and and just don't know what to do. Join us for episode two when we're going to continue talking about the search and what happened. This is when Cleo's mum, Ellie, and her partner, Jake Glidden, speak publicly for the first time. So thanks, Kristen, Phoebe, Dave and Anthony for stepping us through these first crucial days. For more information on this case, including news articles and video, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police.